And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where myself and my guest and good friend, Professor Allen, took a look at the Harvey Comics Ultraman miniseries from 1993, as well as Marvel's Shogun Warriors number 19. We've got a good show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at the classic Daikaiju film, Mothra vs. Godzilla, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. The Thing from 1964 and we've also got the final issue yes that's right the final issue of shogun warriors with number 20. before we get into that though a little bit of news uh viz has released the first volume of the ultraman manga here in the united states this was released as i said the, through viz so you can uh, check your local comic shop to see if they can get you a copy of that the second volume is in the september issue of preview so if you're doing your ordering uh, through any website or through your LCS using previews, you can find uh, Volume 2 uh, in the uh, in the current uh, current set of previews. Um, there are six Tonkaban collections of this in Japan, I'm pretty sure. I don't know how close we are to a seventh, but uh, we've got at least uh, five more volumes coming after the one that was already released. So very much looking forward to that. I just got mine from DCBS last week. I haven't had a chance to sit down with it yet. But uh, I am eager, eager to tear into that. I'm very, very excited about that. In other comic news, Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift number 1 from Legendary Comics is also in the September issue of Previews. This is a new title. It's an ongoing anthology series with various stories from the Kaiju Wars. It looks like fun to me. I really enjoyed the Tales from Year Zero hardcover that Legendary put out as a tie into Pacific Rim. And frankly, if any property would be well served by having, you know, little side stories or guidance in Pacific Rim. So check out previews for that, again, coming from Legendary Comics, and uh, should be out, I'm guessing, in uh, November, if it's either November or December, if it's in September's previews. And one last bit of comic news, Project Nemesis is a comic series coming from American Gothic Press, which is the new... Uh, newly founded comics arm of Famous Monsters magazine. Now this is based on the novel of the same name by author Jeremy Robinson, uh, which is the first of his Kaiju Saga novels, and Robinson is writing the comic along with artist Matt Frank. Matt Frank, of course, probably best known to listeners of this show for his work uh, on various IDW Godzilla titles. This is the first issue of a six-issue miniseries. It bows in October. I've had Project Nemesis and the other books in that series on my radar for a while. I think this is uh, probably going to get me to you know, get over that hurdle and uh, buy one of them and check it out. So. Um, in non-comic related news, X Plus has announced their 2016 Diamond lineup of 12-inch vinyl kaiju, and it's a very interesting uh, collection of monsters, kind of runs the gamut here. We've got Anguirus 1968, Baragon 1965, Titanosaurus, Space Godzilla, Kiru 2003, Gigan both 1972 and 2004, 
and Rodan 68. Now all of these will be again available through previews or shops which can order from previews. Their price range MSRP is between $180 and $200, so with your discounts you're probably looking at about $150. Um, they're all big. I mean, these guys are, are good size, they're worth the money, but you really got to make sure you've got the space to display them. I'm specifically thinking of like Angurus and Baragon, they've got long tails. Um, Rodan with his wingspan, so make sure you got some room for it, but these are really cool. Some of, uh, I really like the Sandangaira set I picked up from X-Plus a while back. Very nice. If I could afford more of these, I totally would buy them, but space and money are two limiting factors for many collectors, myself included, so. Uh, but definitely check those out, and, uh, hat tip to scifijapan.com for the, uh, the info on this one. I'd also like to take a moment right now to give a big hat tip and a big thank you to Joey Weiser. Now, those of you who may not be familiar with Joey's work, Joey is an Eisner Award-nominated uh, comic book artist and cartoonist. And uh, he has done for us the new artwork and logo for the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. So if you head on over to the 2TrueFreaks.com page for Earth Destruction Directive, you can see the wonderful, wonderful logo that Joey did for us. Uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, I met Joey a few years ago at Heroes Con, just happened to be walking by his table, and he had his uh, sketches up of the Kaiju alphabet. And I was like, oh, i got to stop and look at this. So we got to talking. Uh, turns out Joey's a big uh, giant monster and tokusatsu fan as well. And uh, I just fell in love with his work. It's really good stuff. His book series, Merman, the fourth volume of which is due out uh, fairly soon from Oni Press, is wonderful. It's an all-ages adventure book involving Merman, the merman from Mer, and his adventures with some kids here on the surface world. Um, the, the Volume 3 was the one that was nominated for the Eisner. Unfortunately, didn't win, but still a fantastic, fantastic series. His Daikaiju stuff is great. Uh, I always make a point to get something from him every time I see him. And uh, when I was thinking about doing a new logo for the show, his was the only... Uh, name that popped into my head is I've got to get Joey to do this. So please go check that out. You can check out Joey's, uh, all of Joey's stuff at his website, which is tragic-planet.com. That's tragic-planet.com. And I put that link again in the show description on the uh, Earth Destruction Directive page on tutrufreaks.com. Please go check it out. Um, a lot of great stuff. He's been doing the Daily Dragon Ball, which is really cool. Uh, if you're a Dragon Ball Z fan, he's been drawing a Dragon Ball character a day. <laughs> there's there's a lot to choose from so he's got a lot of them up there and those uh, you can get those sketches you can check out his other uh comic book work and and other stuff so please check that out uh joey if you're listening thanks a lot man really appreciate the logo it looks so cool and uh i hope to work with you again in the future all right, that's about all the news I've got right now. If you find any interesting news tidbits about anything Daikaiju-related, go ahead and send it in, Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll be able to uh, get it into the show. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to cover Mothra vs. Godzilla, or if you prefer, Godzilla vs. The Thing, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now I'll show you what I already know. As one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. Where there is fire, there is smoke. Burn it down! Burn it down! Dick, you're fired! Thank you. Playmon! Hey, Johnny! I didn't know you could ignite parts of your body. Now, to do the job, I need some high-octane gasoline. Shields. Fire! What would you like to do in the whole world? 
Burn it all. Your world will burn. Come on, let's burn them all. Go, go. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Third Degree Burn, a podcast looking at all things John Byrne. Available at tutufreaks.com. What a hothead. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The film we're going to be taking a look at today is Mothra vs. Godzilla. Mothra vs. Godzilla was released April 29th, 1964 in Japan, and then November 25th, 1964 by American International Pictures here in the United States. AIP retitled the film Godzilla vs. The Thing, and the ad campaign played up the mystery by having G tangle with a giant question mark or a tentacled monster, uh, depending on whether you're looking at the one sheet or the broadsheet. Take a look at the episode art for an example of this. Uh, this was known on video all through the 80s as Godzilla vs. Mothra. Now, more frequently called Mothra vs. Godzilla to distinguish it from the 1992 film, uh, also called Godzilla vs. Mothra, which we previously covered here in Earth Destruction Directive. I personally find myself calling it Godzilla vs. The Thing, because I'm old, apparently, and that's the title I remember it best as. News reporter Ichiro Sakai and photographer Junko Nakanishi take pictures of wreckage caused by a typhoon and discover a large reptilian scale amongst the debris. Later that day, a giant egg is discovered floating near the shore. The local villagers salvage it, and an entrepreneur of Happy Enterprises named Kumiyama buys the egg from the local villagers. Instead of letting scientists study the egg, Kumiyama wants to make it into a tourist attraction. While Sakai, Junko, and their scientist friend Professor Mayura are discussing the egg at a nearby hotel, they discover Kumiyama checking in. Kumiyama then meets with Hiro Torahada, the head of Happy Enterprises. The two businessmen talk about their money when they are unexpectedly confronted by tiny twin girls. Mothra's priestesses, the twin fairies, aka the Shobajin. The two businessmen try to capture them, but the fairies escape and eventually meet with Sakai, Junko, and the professor. After explaining that the egg belongs to Mothra, aka the thing, and that the egg, if it hatches, the larva will cause great damage, the trio agree to help. Sakai, Junko, and the Professor try to reason with Kumiyama and Torhada, but fail to do so, with Kumiyama actually offering to buy the fairies. Discouraged, the fairies leave, riding on Mothra, while our three heroes say they will continue to get the egg back where it belongs. Godzilla suddenly emerges from Karada Beach, where he had been washed ashore by the hurricane and buried, and begins to attack Nagoya. The U.S. military deploys their ship-mounted Frontier missiles in an attempt to kill Godzilla as he stomps down the coast, but their effort is fruitless. Sakai, Junko, and the Professor make a desperate trip to Infant Island to request the fairies to send Mothra to defeat Godzilla. The natives do not trust them and will not hear their appeals, telling them that they have no reason to help them. But the pleas of Junko win over the fairies and the natives, who pledge that Mothra, though near death, will help them. The JSDF launched several attacks on Godzilla, including dropping large metal nets on him and zapping him with artificial lightning. While the defenses do slow him down, the King of Monsters continues moving ever forward towards the giant egg. During Godzilla's rampage, Kumiyama barges into Torahada's room and demands to get money back that Torahada had recently swindled from him. Kumiyama is shot by Torahada in the struggle, 
and Torahada himself is also killed when Godzilla arrives and smashes the hotel into rubble. Just as Godzilla reaches the egg, Mothra arrives and engages him in a fierce battle. Mothra is outmatched in strength, but batters Godzilla with her wings and poison scales. Eventually, though, Godzilla gets the upper hand, and Mothra dies, cradling the egg with her wings. As Godzilla continues his march, the twin fairies begin to sing a prayer to the egg, which hatches, revealing two larvae. Caterpillars make their way to Godzilla and ambush him with their silk shot. The two continuously harass Godzilla, including clamping down on his tail at one point, the whole time covering him with silk. Soon Godzilla is completely cocooned up in silk, and unable to move, tumbles down a cliff into the sea. Crisis averted, the fairies travel back to Infant Island with the two Mothra larvae, leaving the so-called civilized world behind them. Oh, a lot of fun. This is a classic. This is one that I had on VHS when I was a kid and have watched many times. Um, very highly regarded and well-known uh, entry into the series, and uh, I think it still holds up pretty well. So let's get into the notes. This is an important film, and I put important in air quotes because this is a a Daikaiju movie. We're talking about how important are they really in the grand scheme of things, but it's an important film in that it establishes that the Toho films all take place in the same universe. Godzilla and Mothra were both pre-existing before this film, unlike King Kong, who in the Toho films did not exist before King Kong vs. Godzilla. Thus, later on when we introduce Rodan, Varan, Baragon, and Manda, it makes perfect sense. It's all connected. With one exception, this film cements the formula for the series as well. The last element that's missing is that Godzilla is a hero, which he is not in this film, he's the villain. The idea of Godzilla being a hero is introduced in the next film, which was released later by later on in 1964, which is Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Of course, that was covered way back in Episode 2 of Earth Destruction Directive, for those of you with really long memories. <laughs> uh, you may want I don't, to... I don't know that I'd recommend going back and listening to that, because I have a hard time listening to that era of the show, because I was still really kind of figuring out what the hell I was doing. I'm still trying to figure that out, but in any event, uh, what was started here and cemented the, in Gator the Three-Headed Monster really set the tone for the Showa series, and so in many ways this is sort of the prototypical Showa Godzilla film. This was also the first film to be released in the United States in nearly identical form to its uh, original release. A few minor scenes were trimmed here and there, and there was an effect sequence that was added um, as an exclusive to the American release. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But uh, after the kind of hatchet jobs that we got for the last couple of releases, this was the first one in the Godzilla series proper to be released in a very um, uh, true to its original film uh, form. And one of the major elements of this film is the monster egg. The American ad campaign by AIP pretty much revolved around what will hatch out of the egg. And uh, they, they show us all these menacing shots of the egg looming in the trailer and uh, you know, Godzilla approaching it. But they don't show us any bit of Mothra because they wanted to convince us that this was a new monster and not just Mothra, who you had already seen. This kind of reminds me of what they did with Godzilla Raids again by retitling a Gigantus the Fire Monster to try and convince you that this wasn't Godzilla again. Uh, at this point, the idea of returning monsters that we previously liked had not really uh, taken a foothold. Now they would blast her Mothra's back as much as they could. Also, I, I really like this. When we see the egg floating out um, off the shore, and the villagers all going out and saying they're going to get it and bring it back, they conveniently leave out the part of showing us how they got it onto the shore. 
and uh, <laughs> onto the beach. Uh, again, one of those things that it's movie magic. It happens because it has to happen, so we just kind of go with it, right? Ah, uh, Komiyama, the guy from Happy Enterprises. What a jackass this guy is. Definitely pushes the theme of the film of profits versus science. And the egg belongs to the villagers. They claim rights to it because anything that drifts into their waters in front of their village, they have rights to by salvage. Okay, that's fair enough, I guess. But then they turn around and sell the egg to Komiyama, and he gives them a price basically based on the cost of one chicken egg versus, I think he says, like two million chicken eggs would be the size of this egg. After the end of the war and increased international trade with Japan, these themes about capitalism being taken to its extreme level and corporate greed driving all other factors would become very common in their pop culture, especially in film. And we'd also see this in manga and anime as well. And it, this is one of the best examples of it because everything Komiyama does, everything revolves around money. That's all his character cares about. And he's just a, a greasy, slimy jerk, and you just hate him every time he's on screen. We're also introduced to the Shobajin, or the Twin Fairies, played here by the Peanuts, as they were in the uh, pre in previously in Mothra, and will again in Gyudor the Three-Headed Monster. Uh, one half of the Peanuts just recently passed away as of this recording, which uh, uh, was, was sad news, but you know, I mean, the woman was in her 70s, so not entirely unexpected. Uh, I love the giant sets that they use for to show the Shobajin. I'm a sucker for that sort of thing, kind of like the Incredible Shrinking Man. We get some pieces of oversized... Um, furniture in the hotel that they run and hide around, also their carrying case that they're conveniently um, carried around in for the latter half of this film, as well as the next film. Uh, they In the AIP dub, they are referred to coming from Mothra Island. This clearly should be Infant Island, but AIP was obviously not super concerned with continuity at that point. Later on in the series, uh, in the English dubs, they would in fact call it Infant Island. We do get a nice little bit also, a flashback to the island where we see the natives doing their prayer chant these all I always liked these scenes as as a kid, and I still like them now. When it's you know it's it's the same as when we get like a western film here in the states, and we um, would always you you might show the uh, whatever the local uh, American Indian tribe that was involved in the story, they're you know them doing their prayers or their war dance or whatever. It's those kind of that exotic flavor sort of thing, which is it's pretty nice here. And 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 this is kind of one of the better ones. We don't get any of the. Uh, you know, the plastic grass skirts like we got on uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla or by way back in Gamma vs. Barugan. So this one's one of the better ones. Hiroshi Kozumi, he plays a scientist in both this film and in Mothra, but not the same character. He would go on to reprise his role from Mothra way on down the line in um, Godzilla, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, uh, Tokyo SOS, which was 2003. It's it's just you know it's a typical thing. You watch enough of these Toho films, they stay you know it's the actors they had under contract. They appear over and over, and in this case, Koizumi plays a scientist twice involving Mothra, but not the same guy. I just thought that was really funny. Uh, along the same lines, Yuriko Hoshi plays a reporter girl in both this film and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, but again, does not play the same character. And of course, the Peanuts would return uh, to play the Shobajin uh, again as well, before being replaced for Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. Mothra's first appearance, uh, after the Shobajin have given up trying to reason with the Happy Enterprises guys to return the egg, uh, our heroes take him outside, and Mothra's just kind of sitting there on the hillside, just like, hey, what's up? I'm just uh, going to chill here for a bit, that's cool. Just seems a little bit odd that nobody noticed Mothra just hanging out on the hillside there. Uh, we get to hear the Mothra song, as is appropriate for a show of Mothra film, or any Mothra film for that matter. 
Here's where the, also in the AIP dub, where the confusion between Mothra and the Thing starts coming in. The fairies refer to the full-grown Mothra as the Thing. And then Junko says, Mothra. So, I don't know. It, it's never really explained. It is a little confusing if you don't know the history with them renaming it. But, I mean, it doesn't really take away from the film, but it doesn't add anything either. When our heroes go to see Komiyama and Torahata, their cor their corporate greed is hilarious. It's it's like corporate greed completely personified. We'll buy the girls. I mean, it's like really, how does that even work? I mean, I guess the idea that enough money solves all the problems. Of course, uh, Komiyama builds the giant incubator around the monster egg. This is one of the famous images from this film, this giant incubator around the monster egg. Kind of a classic. I've seen this used in uh, diorama bases, uh, spoofed in different places. It's really just a, a great image and one of the lasting ones from this film, of, of which there are several. Uh, we also get a scene of radioactive decontamination. As the professor decontaminates Sakai and, and Junko in his lab after they were handling the... Uh, the the giant scale that was radioactive. Another typical kind of Showa era scene dealing with radiation, Geiger counters, and uh, decontamination. These were, you know, obviously hot button issues in Japan and were mainstays of the series throughout the entire Showa era. Godzilla arrives at about 30 minutes into the film. Uh, there's a great scene where their jungle says the land is moving because we see the earth going up and down where Godzilla is kind of wiggling around under the ground before his tail pops out and then the rest of them comes up. Great bit in this, as Godzilla pops up, the Professor's Geiger counter literally goes off the chart clicking. It just hits the top of the gauge, that's it. The Godzilla 64 suit is a very popular one with fans. It's generally a really good suit. Uh, one interesting aspect about it, it's got these little ridges over his eyes that look almost like eyebrows. It gives him a, a very kind of menacing look, having these ridges over his eyes. Good proportions on the, on the suit, the tail, it moves really good. A great face, great set of eyes on him really uh, well-deserving of its uh, popularity with fans. The G64 suit would go on to be used in mostly this form for the next couple of films. It might, the head would get revised a little bit and uh, eventually would get worn out to the point that they couldn't use it anymore. Well, the suit is really good, there are some kind of uh, dicey compositions, especially in the U.S. version, where we see the Godzilla puppet in the long shot, and then, you know, stuff happening in the foreground, and it's obviously kind of like a double exposure type. Um, there's some other bits where, again, we see Godzilla exposed in a shot, and it's clear that it's not shot all in camera. It's a little little grainy. doesn't look all that great. The actual straight tokusatsu-style effects are actually really nice. There's some really good bits in here with some character moments for Godzilla. At one point, he slips and falls into a building. Uh, he goes to step, and his foot doesn't quite make it, and so he tumbles off down uh, uh, an incline a bit and then falls into the building. Another one, he kind of swings his tail carelessly and hits a tower that falls and hits him. He seems a bit out of sorts, which makes sense considering that he only just woke up after getting washed ashore by this massive storm after recuperating from his fight with King Kong. So it would make sense that Godzilla wouldn't be uh, completely with all of his wits about himself. So I actually like those scenes quite a lot. His beam is fully animated this time out. It is not the mist effect. Uh, depending on how much money that Toho had for opticals, would vary whether or not Godzilla's beam was animated or a mist. In this case, it's animated. It looks very nice. Nice, nice cool blue as he uh, burns things down. 
This brings us to the Frontier Missile Attack. As I said before, this scene was exclusively for the American dub by AIP. Basically, AIP got in touch with Toho when they were talking about distributing the film and asked if they could do a scene showing the U.S. military fighting Godzilla just to give the film uh, some homegrown sort of feel. And it's a really nice scene. I like that it shows international cooperation between the U.S. and our allies, Japan, and taking down Godzilla. I think that's really neat, especially again in the the 60s, in this post-war period. It's a nice effect scene with the ships firing these missiles. Big, they look like Patriot missiles, sort of, but... Uh, you know, obviously way before those were a thing, and just just pounding Godzilla with these missiles on the shoreline. The scene adds absolutely nothing to the narrative, but it's really neat, and it's nice to get an exclusive effect shot instead of exclusive shots of a guy in a studio talking. So uh, a nice change of pace there. Good scene. Worth watching the U.S. version to see that, definitely. The trip to Infant Island is uh, actually kind of somber for a film that's been pretty colorful and fun. For the most part, this is very somber. There's a lot of uh, this remains and skeletal remains of different animals all over the place. Um, Sakai and Junko and the professor talk about how uh, this is all of mankind's responsibility for the nuclear testing that was done here that basically destroyed this island. There's a very strong anti-nuke message, even this point into the 60s, would continue until we get more into the ecological awareness uh, messages in the 70s, but definitely a strong vibe here connecting with the earlier films in the Showa era. Uh, The depiction of the natives here versus, as we see in King Kong vs. Godzilla, is much more serious. They are not played for last like they are in King Kong vs. Godzilla. Uh, The chief is very, very unwelcoming to the outsiders, at one point even saying, May your land be ruined like ours! So I I really like that, they're just basically going to throw them out. Um, but then we get to see the, the twin fairies praying to Mothra, and we get not just the regular, the traditional Mothra song, we get some of the other Mothra prayer songs which would crop up throughout the series, which is nice, we get a lot of them in here. It's sort of the circle of Mothra life, this scene, as the, uh, the fairies inform us that the thing is near death, and that the egg will hatch and a new Mothra will show up, so it says, as the sun sets on my kingdom, you know, James Earl Jones wasn't doing uh, dubs for AIP, but that would have been something, wouldn't it? Back in Japan, the JSDF deploys their artificial lightning trap, which asked me the question, why do we keep attacking Godzilla with electricity? It didn't work in 1954. It kind of worked in 1962. Why do we keep doing this? Why is this a theme? I, I guess at the time, you know, if you, if you can't drop an atomic bomb on him, this is the, you know, the best thing you can do besides just throwing tanks and jets at him is to try and use electricity we do get uh, some minor pieces of stock footage here from king kong versus godzilla of the uh the power lines being erected as well as uh, scenes at the power plant of the different um uh, panels coming online which is which is pretty nice the the trap and the activation are, are they're well done it's a nice scene but it just seems odd we're getting another bit with uh, an electrical trap for godzilla the scene of Komiyama and Torahata fighting over the money even as Godzilla approaches. I mean, this is pretty much Honda hitting it on the head here, saying that the evils of money and corporate greed, as these two guys are, you know, literally in the path of Godzilla and they're fighting over, I mean, admittedly a lot of money, but still, and the Torahata shoots Komiyama dead and then has a chance to escape but takes so much time trying to grab as much money as he can that he can't uh, get out of the building before Godzilla levels it. It's a kind of just desserts ending. These guys, you know, they, they loved their money so much that they missed the, uh, you know, the real world <laughs> happening right in front of them. And uh, it's, it's a good ending. I, I always, 
I, I don't know that I always got this kind of subtext when I was a kid, but it's definitely on the nose here, and it's, it's very well done, I think. Following that, we see Godzilla approaching the incubator, and he's got this blank stare on his face. I don't know if this is intentional or not. Um, it, it's shot in such a way that we see his eyes a couple of times as he's just staring down this incubator, uh, almost like he's not sure what to make of it, or maybe he's deciding if how he's going to eat the egg. I don't know. It's a, it's a really nice scene. Uh, and this leads right into Mothra showing up for the for the attack. And one thing I really like about this is that Mothra has fast wings. If you remember back when we talked about Godzilla vs. Mothra 92, both Mothra and Batra had the incredibly slow-moving wings. That there's no way that they could keep them afloat. Here, Mothra's wings beat very fast, because what they've done is instead of over-cranking the film on her, they have undercranked the film so that when it's played back at normal speed those wings are really moving now you do get some silly bits here and there where Godzilla's in the frame with her and he's moving too fast but I'll take that over the really slow wings the slow wings is a pet peeve of mine with flying monsters and Mothra looks great with her wings beating really fast here uh, I do like that the fairies when they arrive they tell uh they tell uh, Shira and Junko, we always keep our promises, you know, which I thought was a nice touch, kind of rubbing the salt in the wound a little bit there. But, uh, you know, they mean it well. The fight between Godzilla and Mothra is, is pretty good. Mothra is clearly outclassed, but she's giving it all she's got. At one point, grabs Godzilla by the tail and drags him around a little bit to get away from the egg. Now that that's a, a nicely done scene, well, you know, and again, the legs on the Mothra puppet look better here in 1964 than they do with a much bigger budget in 1992 so do with that what you will uh there's another instance of the godzilla puppet here uh, uh close-up shots of it getting battered in the head with mothra's wings as mothra's behind him and he's trying to turn around also we get to see mothra's poison scales now this is an attack that would get reused later uh, they use this to a different effect again in the 90s. Uh, this was famous, of course, in Mothra's attack in the Godzilla NES game. She uh, used the poison scales. Um, makes sense, but again, a kind of a, it, it just shows that that's her most powerful attack, and she's just not at the same level power-wise as Godzilla. So it makes her uh, her fight a desperate kind of fight. It's not like we really think Mothra's going to beat him. It's just how much is she going to hold on. And then, of course, after Mothra gets blasted with Godzilla's atomic beam, crashes and lands over the egg and cradles the egg with her wing it's one of the really classic images from this movie again like i said earlier with the incubator that is one that any daikaiju fan i think who has seen this movie will remember that scene of the egg underneath mothra's wing even protecting it as she dies uh godzilla though loses interest and kind of wanders off to do his own thing which is falling into the artificial lightning trap as they zap it with the artificial lightning at one point godzilla is actually on fire uh, I don't know, again, if this was intentional or accidental and just left in. It looks cool as heck, though. You'd see this more on Ultraman, where they'd accidentally light the monster suits on fire, and they just keep filming until the guy kind of staggered down and they were able to put him out. It's very similar, visually, to King Ghidorah's gravity beams. They're white instead of yellow. Of course, they would reuse this optical effect in the next film, so that makes sense. Kind of ironic, considering that we don't know... When this is new, we don't know that King Eater is coming, so just kind of funny that it worked out that way. Also here, they, they drop two really, really big-ass metal nets on Godzilla to trap him so that they can shoot him with the artificial lightning and the metal act as a conductor. I'm willing to accept that part. Where did they get the giant nets from? 
And how did they have enough time to construct not one but two of them? These are the questions left unanswered that we have to just simply speculate on because they never will provide us any more insight than that. You know, we're willing to accept giant monster eggs, huge incubators, giant moths that live on islands in the South Seas and are worshipped as gods. You know, ra dinosaurs radiated by nuclear testing to become uh, huge, uh, you know, fire-breathing monsters. But no, giant metal nets. That's what I want to know about. After Godzilla gets out of the artificial lightning trap, he's just merrily on his way, stomping about, and then we see the egg begin to crack. And this is the third of the classic images from this film for me. When there, we see a close-up of that eggshell, and all of a sudden the cracks start running through it with a great bit of sound design of the cracking. You know it just got real up in here. And Shinko has the great line of the dub, look, there are two, as the two different larvae burst out. And, uh, it, I mean, um, the problem with this, not so much problem, but it wasn't really a huge surprise for me, because before I saw this film, I had seen the Vestron video trailer for it, which spoiled this scene. So that was a little disappointing as a kid. But, you know, you don't think about it. You're just like, ooh, cool, two Mothras. You don't even think about the fact that you've been spoiled on it. As Godzilla is on uh, on his merry way, we get some kids in peril as there's a group that was backpacking up the side of the mountain that is now cut off from getting off the mountain because of Godzilla's approach and they can't get a boat out to him. So of course our heroes have to take the boat out to rescue all the uh, all the kids and their teacher. The upshot of this is that as the Mothras go and attack Godzilla, they've kind of inadvertently become the defenders of humanity, which of course would become Mothra's more major role as the character continued to appear in later films. So I thought that was funny. Almost by accident, the Mothras are the defenders of humanity. Uh, during the fight between the Caterpillars and Godzilla, we get the uh, you know, one more classic shot, one that's been uh, immortalized in toys and... Uh, model kits over the years it was even one of the x plus godzilla chess pieces which is the caterpillar clamped onto godzilla's tail and him whipping the tail up and down with the caterpillar still attached this is a great great shot it's 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 funny and it's cool at the same time and it's really memorable it's one of the best um best known scenes involving godzilla and mothra i think for the entire series just because it, it's so just memorable when you see it the silk shot that the caterpillars use, classic attack of Mothra, to use the silk to web stuff up. Uh, they just tag team them back and forth, back and forth, and G doesn't seem to do much about it. I've seen this kind of explained away, that the silk has a sort of narcotic effect, that when you're hit with it, you kind of it slows you down, you don't respond as good. I tend to think of this more as they're just hitting them with so much, because we keep cutting back and forth between the two of them, shooting their silk, and then ducking behind cover, then they cut the other one shooting his silk and duck behind cover, and, and so on and so forth, that they're just hitting them with so much silk that G is trying to find them, but he can't do much about it, and that the silk is really strong. I liken it to what we would later get with Kuamunga's web in Son of Godzilla, that Godzilla, it's so strong, Godzilla can't even tear it, only heat can destroy it. So, I really like it, and Godzilla gets cocooned up like you would not believe. He looks almost like a mummy. He's so cocooned up, and of course, what else can you do at that point besides trip over your own feet and fall into the ocean and uh, disappear? So, uh, classic ending to the film. The kids are okay, the day is saved, and the Mothras and the fairies swim on back to Infant Island saying their goodbyes. So, classic Showa ending. You know, uh, they'd use it again and again of either Mothra or Godzilla, whomever, wading off into the sea, saying goodbye as they're done, because that's the end of the movie's over. No no need for a big denouement, let's simply end it. So This is great fun from the start, and it does not let up. It's not a long film, it's only about 88 minutes, and it just goes, goes, goes. The story, it's easy enough to grasp for kids. 
Uh, as I said, I first saw this when I was a kid, but it doesn't insult the intelligence of the adult viewer either. I think focusing on the human villains being these greedy corporate slime balls is a nice nod to the grown-ups in the audience because we can identify with that. And, uh, you know, maybe we're not, you know, maybe if our kids are watching it, we're not giant monster fans, we're not as interested, but that's something that at least gives it a, a level of realism that we can appreciate. Uh, its messages about anti, uh, you know, corporate greed and anti-nuke are very strong without being preachy like we get, I'm thinking specifically like Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, where it just gets so heavy-handed with the preachiness that it becomes almost parody. Not so here. Everything is, you know, it's on point, and it's, it's, it's uh, not exactly subtle, but it doesn't beat you over the head with it either. There's great special effects throughout. It's got a fan-favorite Godzilla suit and a great turn, an absolutely great turn by both uh, both the larva and moth forms of Mothra. This is probably the best that uh, both of them look in the same film, um, except possibly the original Mothra. I give the nod here just because we get the two caterpillars, which to me is very classic, and I really like that a lot. They even reuse that idea down the road again in Tokyo SOS. It does recycle some elements from Mothra, which I know is odd, we haven't covered that here on the on the show yet, uh, but it changes them up enough that I'm willing to go with it. The comparison I always kind of liken it to is The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, where, yeah, they're basically the same plot, Stromberg and uh, Sir Hugo Drax have basically the same plan in mind, but the films are different enough that you're eh, sort of willing to overlook it. Uh, it helps also that there was a few years between Mothra and Godzilla versus The Thing, so that it wasn't immediately after like those two got, uh, James Bond movies. It's obvious to me why this is one of the fan favorites, and generally one of the best of the entire series. It's just a really good Daikaiju film. It's got strong monster stuff, strong human stuff, good effects, great score by Akira Ifukube, even if it does, again, reuse elements from earlier films. But they're good, so who cares? And uh, just a, a really, really strong movie definitely worth its reputation. The classic media DVD release has both the uh, American and Japanese versions. You can find it on Amazon for about five bucks. Um, there's no plans that I know of for a Blu-ray release, but frankly, this DVD is a great release, which I heartily recommend. Uh, it's, just, it's the typical classics media one. It's got the silver kind of bookshelf style uh, case that opens up. It's a single disc, got both, uh, both versions on it. As I said, it's got some special features as well. Um, I, and for the for the price, you can't beat it. I mean, if you to get both the American and Japanese versions for five bucks, I mean that's just uh, you know that that's a no brainer to me. So definitely head on over to um, to hit that Amazon.com link and pick this up. Also, speaking of Amazon, if you are interested in anything we talk about here on Earth Destruction Directive, I have added a link. If you go to the Earth Destruction Directive page on TutureFreaks.com, I have created a shopping list on Amazon that if you click on the link in the show description, it will take you to Amazon and has a list of all of the films and books that are available that we've covered on the show. So if you want something from uh, previously uh, or you want to see it all in one place, just click on that link and it'll take you there. So, like I said, really good film. I had a lot of fun revisiting this. It's been uh, been a long time since I had a chance to watch Godzilla vs. the Things. So it was fun to revisit it, and I think you'll enjoy it too. So give it a give it a watch. I think you'll enjoy. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Shogun Warriors number 20 was cover dated September 1980 and released on or about June 3rd, 1980. This information comes, of course, from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our artist is Herb Trimpey. Our letterer, James Novak. Colorist, Carl Gafford. Editor, Louis Simonson. Editor-in-Chief, Jim Shooter. And our title is The Circle's End. On the star cruiser Nightwind, Captain Simel mulls over the recent events, including fellow charter member the Primal One demanding and receiving the use of the massive machine Gigantoron in order to stop Earth technology from advancing too quickly. Her thoughts are interrupted, however, by said Primal One reporting failure on Earth and demanding more resources for his mission. Simel has had enough and recalls Gigantoron with a tractor beam. In Manhattan, Genji Odashu, Ilongu Savage, and Richard Carson, along with the fabulous Fantastic Four, are discussing their next step when the prone form of Gigantoron lifts effortlessly off the ground and zips away into space. Deciding that they have to follow, the Shogun pilots in the FF pile into Combatra and blast off as well. Simel is fed up and announces that she will resign from the Charter and leave the Primal One and all of his nonsense behind her. Gigantoron returns and redocks with Nightwing, but Combatra is close behind. Simel reconsiders her position when the Shogun prepares to attack and mobilizes her full arsenal to bear, including countless laser blasters mounted both outside Nightwind and inside its cylindrical body. Combatra, the Shogun pilots, and the FF are battered endlessly by the barrage until Genji manages to blast a hole in the hull big enough for the Shogun to duck inside. Splitting up, the FF is soon besieged by the Primal One's army of drones, while the Shogun pilots battle a flotilla of destroyer ships from inside Combatra. The FF come across the ship's power station, including a main shutdown switch, which would bring the entire cruiser down. They are stopped by Simel's crew, who claim no allegiance to the Primal One, and agree to bring the heroes to him. Meeting up with Combatra along the way, the combined forces of Earth crash into the bridge, where they find Simel, and more importantly, the Primal One himself. The Primal One begs Simel to help him, but she refuses. Genji moves Combatra to snuff out the energy being, but she hesitates. Simel praises his compassion for life, and once more changes her mind about the Earthlings. The Primal One is not as generous and orders his drones to attack, leading the FF to engage them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Noticing a strange light from behind a door, the invisible woman sneaks away and discovers the force behind the primal one, none other than Lord Maurikan. Cutting off Maurikan's power panel, primal one dissipates into trace energies, the drones give up the fight, and the day is seemingly saved. Crisis averted, it's time for an info dump as we learn that both the followers of the light and Maurikan were members of the Charter in the past, but after his last defeat, Maurikan let everyone think he was dead in order to strike back at the Shoguns. 
first backing Dr. Demonicus, and then contacting the Charter with his fake scheme to slow down Earth's advancement. Simel arrests Malarkon, saying she will turn him in as her last act before she resigns her commission. She then tells the Shogun pilots that she envies humanity, as it has every wonder and miracle still out there waiting for them, and that if they are wise and do not waste this opportunity, then they shall meet again amongst the stars. Next issue... Okay, so that's the finale of Shogun Warriors. I've, I've got to tell you, you know, a little disappointing. Not the best, uh, not the best finale I've ever read to a series, that's for sure. So let's get right into the notes. So the cover to Shogun Warriors 20 uh, shows us Combatra and the Fantastic Four battling against the forces of the Primal One and Captain Simel, and there's the Human Torches swooping in. Actually, his streak of flame is crossing in front of the O in Shogun and the A in Warriors. We see Combatra firing off the Rocket Fist. Reed Richards is stretching from the foreground to the background. Uh, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing is tossing a couple of drones around. Sue is uh, blocking laser blasts with her force field. So everyone's using their powers. Actually, a very nice little cover here. And there's also a fantastic bit of Kirby Crackle around the Primal One, which I think is very nice considering it's a Fantastic Four guest spot to have some Kirby Crackle there. So good job by Trini. The cover, as I said, it's a great action-packed cover featuring Combatra and the Fantastic Four. I like that the Primal One and Simel are in there as well. Uh, it's it's a good cover. You know, Trippy's turned in good covers for this entire series, so that part is not really surprising to me that this cover is good. Worth noting, this does have the This Marvel comic could be worth $2,500 to you details inside. It's lame, but that's a product of the times, you know. There's Marvel books this month had that. Nothing you can do about it. Uh, turning over to page one, very simple splash page as Simel and her aide-de-camp uh, look in their viewing globe, basically, and see uh, Combatra, Riding, and Dangard Ace. Very simple, uh, no real action to speak of, but it's nice to see Herb Trimpey draw Dangard Ace and Riding one last time because they do not figure into the story at all, which is the first disappointment to me, is that this is the finale of Shogun Warriors, and except for just seeing them on this view screen, Two-thirds of them don't make an appearance. So I have to imagine that this was done, you know, by either Mench and Trimpy or just by Trimpy uh, as a way to get the other two to at least make an appearance. Uh, turning over to page two as, you know, the Primal One and Simel have their argument. Uh, the art team just is fantastic. It's a solid art team. It's a great mix of layouts. The inks look good. The colors look good. Everything just comes together. Uh, artistically, this book has not been a disappointment to me through the entire uh, run of the book, and in this, in that aspect, issue 20 is a success. The, it looks just as good as all the other issues that Trimpy, that Trimpy and Gafford, in this case, um, the, the, Trimpy did his own inks in this book, but generally the book looks good, and that's no exception here. Turning over to page 3, Trimpy's Fantastic Four, nothing special. I said this is the last issue, and it's true here. He works better on the non-human elements. Uh, we get to see the you know, the ships and the, uh, the drones and the robots and all that. That is more Trimpy's element than the straight heroic figures like the Fantastic Four. So I think that's uh, that's clearly more his strong suit and the better looking parts of this book. On page five, we get a full page splash of Gigantoron being lifted up into uh, space by the tractor beam. Once again, we get a great scene, uh, a great sense of scale from Gigantoron. I, I love the way that he looks here. He's just dwarfing 
Kombatra, even laying down, he looks taller than Kombatra is standing up. And we get to see the little Shogun pilots and uh, the uh, Fantastic Four on the bottom. Interesting kind of coloring gaffe here is that it looks like uh, Genji has on just hot pants instead of her white uh, tights uh, going underneath her black hot pants. So, because she's got skin-colored legs there. So it looks like she's just wearing hot pants. Uh, can you imagine if you had a team of, you know, two guys and one woman uh, as your as your pilots today, and the woman was wearing hot pants and the men were wearing full pants? Oh, the, uh, the internets would break in half with fangirl rage over that one, I'm sure. Um, turning over now to page six, panel eight, as Kombatra takes off, there's a little one-panel gag of a couple of people at the Bowl World bowling alley, as uh, it, the, the caption says, and even miles away in the heart of Brooklyn, the Titan's passage is known. And the guy goes, a strike, as all the pins fall over, but I ain't even rolled the ball yet. This is such a Marvel thing, isn't it? To have something like that, uh, just a little throwaway gag like that. It made me laugh. That's, uh, you know, it's good to get a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the humor mixed in here, but it was just such a silly little joke. I, I had to appreciate that. Pages 10 through 14, Trimpy is totally in his element here with the big space battle. Uh, you know, we got ships flying different directions. We got lasers blasting this way and that way. We got the uh, uh, ride, uh, Combatra dodging between blasts, flying inside the big uh, octagonal cylinder that is Nightwind. Very much in his uh, in his element. Also, some really good and creative layouts here. Now, just nothing is a straight grid. You know, we get. Uh, you know, different sizes, different number of panels per page, different uh, shapes to the panels. So, uh, you know, a couple of different trapezoids all mashed together. Very nice work by Trimpy. I really appreciated his page layout and design. Uh, Professor Allen kind of made a point of this last time when we were talking about issue 19, and I've kind of been looking for it a little bit more after the professor mentioned it. I think I'd always kind of realized it subconsciously. But looking at it now, uh, you can see it very clearly if you're looking for it, the way that Trimpy lays out the page. It's, there's nothing static about the way Trimpy lays out his pages in this book, and I really do appreciate that. Turning over now to page 15, as the Fantastic Four are battling the drone army on their own. As if by contractual obligation, we get both a flame on and it's clobbering time on the same page. So it's like, okay, FF are here, it's clobbering time, check. Flame on, check. We unfortunately do not get my personal favorite. Oh, what a revolting development. But I guess you can't win them all, right? At least you get these two. So Andy and Steven would be proud over on Fantastic Cast, I am sure. Page 18, panel 4, as uh, Combatra and the Shoguns are battling the Destroyer Flotilla. Combatra breaks out the Rocket Fist. Got to go with the classics in the last issue, I guess. And it's a really nicely done panel. It's um, It's a thin panel. But it runs the entire width of the page, so you see the uh, the, the the fist on the right hand side is crashing into it, and then you see the jet contrail coming behind him to the left, and you see where it's actually launched out of Combatra's uh, arm. So it's actually a very nice, uh, very nice pa panel, and the wreckage of the destroyer with the croom sound effect is very nicely done as well. I really appreciated seeing that rocket fist one last time. All right, turning over now to page 22 in the power station, Reed has this gamble where he's going to pull this switch to see what it's going to do. It doesn't make sense here. Now, it changes from being initially a switch that would shut down the power to then being a self-destruct switch, like in the dialogue. But how would Reed know that? The switch is not labeled in any way. I, I get Reed is super smart, but he's not psychic. He can't divine what the switch does, can he? 
So I thought that was a little odd. I suppose you could no-prize it as saying, okay, if it's a power switch and they're floating out in space, if Reed shuts down all the power, then the ship will be basically a Hulk. And a ship this size, with that many people on it, not having power for life support, would essentially destroy the ship. But I'm not really buying it. Basically, we need an excuse for Simel's loyal crew to say, well, we don't want to fight you, we don't really like the primal one. So that's why they use the switch. It's kind of a cop-out. I'm not really a, a big fan of it. And then on page 23, after they agree to take Reed and the Fantastic Four to go see the Primal One, we're told off-panel that they come, they cross paths with Combatra and they join back up. And it's like this is the not the you know this really kind of smacks of compression of maybe there was this was supposed to take place over more than one issue. But everything does kind of compress down to finish it in one because there's a lot of stuff like that that happens off panel. And it's, it's like, I would have preferred to see that. There's not a whole lot of Shogun Warriors in this final issue of Shogun Warriors. There's a lot more Fantastic Four. You know, just a bit odd reading it. It doesn't really, that just seems like an odd decision to make, I guess. And page 27, uh, as we get the big battle between the Fantastic Four and the Drone Army, we get the return of Lord Malarcon, who we have not seen in quite a while, uh, at least ten issues since we saw Lord Malarcon way back before the Dr. Demonica storyline. And uh, fittingly, he's still a coward. He's terrified of Sue Storm. He, uh, he, he, he has absolutely no defense against her running in and pushing the giant red button that cuts off his power. And then he's whining the entire time. So great to see Lord Malarcon back. He's still got that nice uh, reddish, like he's been spending too much time in the sun, despite being in space complexion. I really like that. He's got his big hat back. I do like that they kind of tie it back in, because earlier, I didn't lift this out of the synopsis, but when they're on Earth, get before Gigantoron flies off into space, the Shoguns tell the FF about their history and about working for the Followers of Light and battling against Lord Malarcon. So Mensch does a nice job of bringing it back full circle and bringing back their initial villain here to be the um, uh, the big bad of this final story. I don't know that I would have liked this if this was not the final story. I would have preferred the Primal One being his own villain if this was not the final story, but I can understand that symmetry when you're trying to bring everything back and, and close up the series. Um, page 30 is the final page, and it is Info Dump Central, as we have to wrap it up as quickly as possible in ten very small panels that Trimpy crams in here. Um, there's no The End or Fiend or anything like that. In fact, it actually ends with an ellipsis, uh, which is really kind of unfulfilling to me. I'd rather, if it just said, ended with the ellipsis, and then it just said The End or something like that, it would have been much more rewarding. It ends with an ellipsis and nothing. It keeps making me think there's another page. Uh, not a, not, I don't really, didn't really like that choice there. Also, another thing I wasn't a big fan of is that the pilots specifically tie Dr. Demonicus to Malarcon. Carson says, and you were behind Dr. Demonicus, weren't you? Helped him escape prison, supplied him with that space station. And Malarcon says, yes, but the fool failed me, forcing me to take matters in my own hands. I don't like that. I like Demonicus being his own guy because he was already established as a villain who did these crazy things in Marvel Godzilla. So to have Malarcon uh, have to be the man behind Dr. Demonicus, to me, is a little silly. I don't really think that's a, a necessary point. But again, it's the last issue. We're tying up all the loose ends, bringing everything together. So I can understand the motivation, even if I'm, I'm not a real big fan of it. I prefer Demonicus working on his own. The big thing here is that the Shoguns have very little to do with actually stopping the threat. I mean, they show up and they don't fight the Primal One, 
But then the Fantastic Four fights his army, and then Sue Storm is the one who stops the Primal One by exposing Maurikon, and then Simel is the one who arrests Maurikon and brings him in for justice. The Shoguns have become essentially spectators in their own title here, which happens from time to time in comics, but usually not in the final issue of a comic. So that to me was very anti-climax. I really didn't didn't jive with that. It, I would have liked the to see the Shoguns really go toe to toe here, and with with uh, even if it was with Maurikon, maybe Maurikon would have another monster. I don't know. So it really smacks of this, you know, trying to resolve it all in in 22 pages or however many pages it is, and just get it all done because we're not doing another one and move on to better projects. So uh, a little disappointing, uh, gotta admit. The letter column specifically states that profit and loss was the reason for the book ending. Uh, Mensch doesn't get into it more than that, but um, he says, uh, in response to a, a letter writer named Kurt S. Olson, he says, Regrettably, Kurt, there won't be a nest next time. This, for the time being, as well as the foreseeable future, is the final issue of Shogun Warriors. The reason is quite simple, actually, and amounts to the precarious eco- economics of profit and loss. And then he goes on to... to um, to, to hype new books coming out, including Moon Knight, which is done by Doug and Bill Sinkevitt. So it's like, yeah, forget about all, forget about this book. This book's done, but go buy Moon Knight instead. Because there's obviously a large crossover audience between Shogun Warriors and Moon Knight. I'm not sure that I agree with that, but you know, it is what it is. Obviously, the book wasn't selling good enough. Marvel canceled it, and you gotta wrap things up. Overall, an okay, but kind of rush wrap-up to the series. I get the feeling that Munch thought he would have a few more issues, like I said, to tell the story. Thus, things end up getting compressed here. It does tie up the loose ends to a degree, and the big bad does stand revealed. So on that point of view, I can't fault the book. It it does accomplish that. Artistically, as I said, it's just as good as the book has been the entire way through. But that rush job ending, man, and the lack of any actual appearance by two-thirds of the shoguns, it hurts the issue. It really brings it down, in my opinion. And the pilots not being involved in the endgame is another thing. They really should have been hands-on. They should have been the ones that capture Malarcon, not the Fantastic Four. This is not a Fantastic Four book. You know, I get the feeling that Munch really wanted to write the Fantastic Four, which he would get to do. More on that in a few minutes. But, you know, it's like, this is not the place for that. Let those Shoguns go out on top in their own book. Don't make them guest stars in their finale of their own title. I hate to see the book go out on such an anticlimactic note, but you know what? Shogun Warriors was a heck of a ride while it lasted. So, let's take a look real quick and see if there's any interesting ads in the book here. Um, get your usual, you know, win prizes. They got the Bubble Yum, uh, General Hodgepodge ad. I do love the 1,000 tiny magnets. It's like, be sure that you will, be sure not to swallow these. That's all I got to say. Uh, we do get a nice uh, house ad. The top half of it says, like the original X-Men. Then you'll love the new X-Men by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Terry Austin. On sale monthly, still uncanny after all these years. I like this because it has, on the left-hand side, is the original X-Men in their original uniforms, and then Professor Xavier's in the middle. And on the right-hand side is the new X-Men, including Cyclops and Jean Grey are on both sides, and they're kind of staring at each other like, what the... So, I, I imagine Scott, the younger Scott, would be ogling Jean and her phoenix after them. But, you know, that, that may be more information than you can possibly convey in one panel on a house ad. The bottom half of the house ad is for the Man-Thing, and whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the Man-Thing, by Chris Claremont, Don Perlin, and Bob Wyacek, the most exciting swamp creature of them all. 
It's like, yeah, that's not a dig at Swamp Thing. No, couldn't possibly be. Shambling your way every other month on sale now. I do miss the man thing. What a, I miss having more monster books from Marvel and DC, but you now that market's gone. What are you going to do? Oh, uh, you got, um, let's see, uh, America's largest comic dealer from Mile High Comics. Uh, the, uh, ha the subscription ad is just be elite. It's neat to become a privileged Marvel subscriber. And there's the Hulk doing his best, uh, masterpiece theater impression, sitting in a, a big easy chair with his Emily Post drinking a cup of tea. And I like off to the side here, we've got, uh, you can only see a little bit. It's the She-Hulk wearing pink fuzzy slippers reading the Wall Street Journal. I don't know why that really cracks me up. So the Hulk eloquently telling us to subscribe to our favorite Marvel titles. Uh, super gifts and gimmicks, you know, kind of the usual stuff. Uh, we do, in fact, get a hostess ad, however, featuring everyone's favorite, and by everyone I mean not quite everyone, Captain Marvel in Captain Marvel defends the Earth, which goes a little something like this. It is decided we send Kree forces toward Earth to fulfill Fedor's energy manifestation of Earth plan. There is no time to lose. The Earth Chiefs of Staff may take retaliatory measures too soon. It is agreed we will draw on all the Earth's military might to resist the suspected Kree attack. War is not the answer, gentlemen. Those who resort to violence have run out of ideas, but I have not. Even Fedor's inhuman warriors will not be able to resist the delicious golden goodness of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes. The Chiefs of Staff agree to Captain Marvel's plan, and... The airship is not a weapon of war, but a cargo vessel. Delicious cargo! Light golden sponge cake! Delightful creamed filling! Indeed, there is more intelligence on Earth than we imagined. Once again, you have foiled our enemies, Captain Marvel. With the aid of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes, gentlemen. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie's Cakes. I don't know if Captain Marvel is more or less interesting in these ho in these Hostess ads than he is in his actual comic, but I'm willing to bet it's probably about neck and neck, because this is dumb. You know, stopping an Earth invasion of the Kree by bringing them Twinkies. It's... Really? I mean, it's one thing, like the Hawkman one, when, you know, they, they, they quell the uh, goofball-addled brains of all the concert-goers by throwing fruit pies at them, but this just, this one seems a bit much. And it's a Captain Marvel, phenomenal cosmic powers, you know, tapping into the Negabands, defeat them with Twinkies. I understand that's kind of the hostess thing, but it's always kind of a disappointment to me when you get a hostess ad and it's Captain Marvel instead of somebody more interesting. I mean, it's not like Jim Starlin was writing these Captain Marvel ones, although that would be interesting. Alright, that's about all I've got for Shogun Warriors number 20. Like I said, uh, a little disappointing that the series ends on, on such an anticlimactic note, but you know that happens sometimes. you got to take the good and the bad. Um, will this be the end of the Shogun Warriors? Hmm, maybe there'll be something coming up on that, so stick around and listen to what's on next time, and we'll get an idea of where we're going after that. So, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Okay, doing the new promo, do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. 
And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and I have now in my hands email and listener feedback. And if you would like to send some feedback to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also send me a message on Facebook or hit me up on Twitter. Uh, Just take a listen to the outro to the show, and all the different addresses will be there uh, if you want to send feedback. So let's get right into it. Our first email comes from Jack Bond, and Jack's subject is, I got it straight, Mysterians, Tokusatsu, Mysterons, Super Marionation. And Jack writes, that's my go-to joke for the Mysterians, but I rewatched the movie this weekend, and now I have to wonder when it got to Great Britain. I looked at the beta, and I see Thunderbird 1, and of course, the whole scheme of semi-autonomous toys rumbling across a miniature landscape. Jerry Anderson was big in Japan, and now I wonder if it's akin to the Beatles bringing rock and roll back to America. Well, Jack, after you sent me this email, I did some research, and the Mysterians did make it over to the United Kingdom a few years before Thunderbirds. I don't know if it was a direct influence on Jerry Anderson or not. I prefer to think of Anderson and Subaraya kind of as contemporaries, because they were working around the same time doing similar sorts of stuff, but obviously in a, uh, a different sides of the world. So uh, maybe, you know, I just like to think they tapped into that same type of, uh, of creative output. Jack continues. Two things about the Tokyo Shock DVD. One, it has an isolated score audio track. Lots of quiet in the first 30 to 40 minutes, as Ifukube doesn't compete against crowd or conference scenes. The voices are really extraneous once the music does kick in. That's not uncommon, Jack, in, in Japanese films. It's either quiet or it's loud. <laughs> that's just, uh, I don't know if that's true, you know, objectively, but subjectively I've always thought that. Uh, Jack continues, too, perhaps not as noticeable in your bootleg, but even in this supposedly better print, the battle footage explodes in bursts of dirt, hairs, and scratches. I read that when Toho bought their optical printer, they either didn't read or didn't believe the part about it needing a clean environment. Now it adds a level of authenticity. These scenes were filmed in the 50s. Recent movies that attempt to create allegedly old film footage don't quite get it right. That's really funny, (laughs) That's actually really, really funny to me. Uh, the bootleg, it's not as noticeable, only because there's a, a decent amount of grain on the non-special effects scene, so it's not as noticeable. But yeah, you can definitely tell those are in some, some rough shape. Uh, and back to Jack's email. I might be unique among your listeners in that I came to the Mysterians not for the Daikaiju, but for the spaceships. As a kid, I had a photo guidebook to spaceships in the movies up through the 1970s. Its entry for this film had a black and white photo of the saucers buzzing the beta, which I took to be an attempt at an airliner, so I'd expected the first half of the movie to more to be more mysterious in a close encounters of a third kind way. The saucers do not disappoint up there with the Martian war machines for the class of 50s spaceships. 
It's a pity that Battle in Outer Space has not even a hint of giant monster, and you'll probably won't be covering it. As an aside, uh, Battle in Outer Space has been on my list of guidance literally since the day I decided to start doing guidance. So you will get Battle in Outer Space at some point here on our Destruction Directive. Don't ask me when, but you will. So uh, rest assured there... Uh, um, back into the email, it says, The book also included a color picture of the Keylock base from Destroy All Monsters with its simple but nice-looking saucers, which can fly around well on fire, always a plus, but Mr. Monster Zero, which, although the best of these four movies, has the worst saucer design, more like a giant inflatable beach toy. I really liked the saucers in Monster Zero, probably because that was one that I saw at a really young age. And so it, it uh, made a real impression on me. They do look a little puffy, but I, I always liked how smoothly they flew around and how nicely those effects looked, as well as, of course, the scene uh, right around the middle of the film, or in the first half of the film, where they pull Godzilla and Rodan out of their hiding spots so effortlessly and then drag them off into space. I always like that. I still do. So I may be a more of a uh, fan of the Exeans saucers than you are, Jack, but I think we're on the same page for, for most of this. Jack continues, On the plot, when I hear the aliens taking Japanese land and marrying their women, I wonder if that wasn't a veiled complaint about U.S. military bases there. Interesting point about Shirashi going over to the other side. The closest thing that springs to mind is a thing from another world, where the scientists misread the thing's intentions. Or, maybe, the day the Earth stood still where the scientists correctly read Klaatu's intentions. For total, I'll help you aliens against the Earth action, you might have to go to the gangsters and henchmen of the Rocket Man serials, which I have to get around to watching one of these days. Another thing I'll have to do one of these days is pull out my Shogun Warriors comics. I'd put together a run from about this latest issue to the end and the appearance in Fantastic Four back around the time they were disappearing from back issue bins. I'll have something to say about them, but not now. I have to get this off before you drop another podcast, Jack. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for the email. I really appreciated this. It was great to get an email from someone who was a mecha enthusiast, because as we talked about on the Ultraman um, show uh, a while back, that Ultraman's kind of this melding between Daikaiju and Mecha, and that it kind of straddles both those genres, and it brings a bit to both of them. And, and Jack and I went back and forth over email about this very topic and about Mecha in general in these um, these Tokusatsu films. So I really appreciated getting this email, and I, I and I was can't couldn't have wait to read it because it has so many good points about Mecha and the different kind of connective tissue between these films in Japan from the 50s and 60s with the ones here in the West as well. Uh, and I'm, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you've been reading along Shogun Warriors with us, Jack. And uh, thank you again for writing in. Really appreciate it. Our next email comes from Logan Garrett and is simply titled The Green Slime. And Logan writes, Luke, I just had to write and tell you how much I loved your latest show with your brother. It was just such a joy to listen to you guys, to use guys, as we'd say in New York, to you guys reminisce about not just The Green Slime, but all the tangents you guys went on, especially on one of my favorite shows, Mystery Science Theater 3000. One of the most enjoyable podcasts I've heard in a while. Thanks for brightening my day. Well, you're very welcome, Logan. And uh, Jay and I had a great time recording that. And uh, uh, if you don't listen to the Vault of Starbling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, you may not know that my brother has transitioned into being one of the hosts on that show. So if you want to hear more of them Jack and Eddie boys, you can go listen to us over on the Vault as well. Uh, Logan continues, and if I might make a suggestion for an upcoming EDD, how about The Giant Claw, a movie and monster so bad and ugly that you can't help but love it. 
I would be really tempted to the giant claw. I know it's not Japanese, but oh my goodness. You want to talk about a marionette monster? You know, we talk about like uh, Kamakuras or Skuamanga or Ibera being monsters that are marionettes. The giant claw kind of takes the cake as being a puppet monster. Oh, sweet Christmas. So, yes, I think I may have to pencil in the giant claw on there, Logan. That's, uh... <laughs> It's just, it's too good to pass up, or too bad to pass up, really, depending on how you look at it. So, uh, thanks for writing in. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and thank you for the suggestion. That's going to go on the guiding list, um, and we'll get to it eventually, I'm sure. But thanks for writing in, Logan. Our next email comes from Adam Tebow, and uh, I may know Adam. I may. Uh, him and I've, I think we've crossed paths once or twice. And uh, Adam's uh, subject is The Last Dinosaur. Adam writes, Hi Luke, another great episode for Earth Destruction Directive. Despite its apparent ubiquity on cable, I had never heard of this movie before your show. I find that odd because I had cable growing up, and we're around the same age. Anyway, every, th- every time I hear the title of this movie, I can't help but think of the 80s cartoon Denver, The Last Dinosaur, which actually has little to recommend it outside of its rockin' theme song. I know the two are not related in any way outside of their similar title, but it was all I could think about anytime you mentioned it. And yes, if you're trying to look for information on the live action The Last Dinosaur, you get a lot of website results for Denver The Last Dinosaur. And see, I never watched Denver The Last Dinosaur, but I watched this, so maybe that's why. Maybe we're just on different channels. I don't know. Um, I suppose it could, could be the case. Adam continues, outside of that, Polar Borer sounds like one of those vocal exercises Ron Burgundy does before a broadcast. Thrust is an amazing last name that makes me think of the Misty for Space Mutiny, and that ending theme was genuinely amazing. Keep them stomping, Adam Tebow. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for writing in. Yes, just yes to all those. I mean, uh, my, my words that I do before I do the podcast is little peek behind the curtain. I go, pumpernickel, pumpernickel, like, like Tom Servo. Uh, Mast and Thrust, I mean, that was a space mutiny name years before Misty did it, and uh, I do love that last, the, the, the opening and closing theme to The Last Dinosaur, the love theme to The Last Dinosaur, if you will, um, just, just a classic of the era, so cheesy and corny, but so damned earnest at the same time, so, uh, Adam, you can be found over on the Days of Future cast podcast, daysoffuturescast.libson.com, go check them out. Uh, really good group of guys over there uh, talking about all sorts of comics. And uh, I, I think if you like uh, anything on the Two True Freaks Network, you definitely appreciate their stuff as well. So, Adam, thank you very much for writing in. And our last email today comes from Ron Sadowski. And Ron writes, Nice not to have to hear Luke talk for 90 minutes in a row. Twice! And look at that, Ron's email has vanished. I don't, I don't know what happened there. It was... I had it, and it just disappeared out of my hand. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And Ron writes, Just finished getting caught up on the latest episodes of Earth Destruction Directive. Enjoyed your discussion with Dr. Bill on The Last Dinosaur. Truth is, I can't remember if I've seen this or not. Uh, Things in it sound familiar. The polar borer and the rock flattening the T-Rex's head, then popping back. Thing is, this would have been right around the time I was devouring all things sci-fi that were coming out. I just can't remember it. What I do remember and find interesting was Dr. Bill bringing up the Bermuda Depths. Now, I know I saw that one. It was a Friday night, and CBS preempted one of my shows. Logan's Run, or Switch, I can't remember which, 
So I turned the channel, yes, physically got up and turned a knob on the TV set looking for something at 10 p.m. Hate to say it, Ron, but you're not so much uh, older than me that I don't remember also having to get up and turn the channel physically to tune the TV. So I'm right there with you. I remembered that, too. I found a movie on ABC, a love story about a girl and a boy. Blech, but wait, the girl is a ghost and some sea monster is killing people. Why do I recall this so vividly? Well, kitty, sit around me and I will tell you how it used to be. In the age before videos and cable TV, if you wanted to see something, you had to be vigilant and pray a lot. You know, some people pray for world peace or an end to hunger, but, you know, for your TV movie to come back on, that's a worthy cause too, Ron. Uh, let's see. Every Sunday edition of the newspaper, there was a local TV guide printed. And as a kid looking for horror, sci-fi, or monster movies, I had to read it cover to cover. With no IMDb to access, I had to read the descriptions of each film that was shown to figure out if it might hold interest. See, I had read the description of the Bermuda Depths, and it said something like, quote, Young man returns to his island home of his childhood to rekindle his love with an old flame, end quote. Nothing about giant turtles or ghost girls or a battle to the death on the open seas. Then I had an epiphany. Some people don't like sci-fi and horror and will try to hide it from the rest of us. Two things came of this. One, I was much more leery of who and how people describe things, and two, started checking the ABC Friday Night Movie no matter what they said the story was. As a matter of fact, I started up a list on IMDb to identify the films shown on the ABC Friday Night Movie. It is my theory that ABC put certain films on certain days of the week. Sunday was big Hollywood blockbusters, Monday, Tuesday was crime dramas, Wednesday, Thursday were family dramas, and Friday was sci-fi horror. If you or any of your listeners would like to help me prove or disprove this idea, my list so far is here, and Ron provides a list, and I will put this list in the show notes so you guys can go peruse uh, Ron's list here. Ron continues, next was the green slime. Oh, I remember finding this listed for a weekday afternoon showing and rushed home after school. I too might have missed the opening scenes, but who cares? I got to see the cool stuff. I, for some reason, thought it was an Anglo-Italian production, maybe because of their superior miniskirt technology. I was a bit surprised no one made reference to the TSR board game, The Awful Green Things from Outer Space, but I'm guessing neither you nor your brother were gamers. And let me stop for a second right here, Ron. I am a gamer, and I am familiar with the awful green things from outer space, but frankly, ever since I first discovered that game and um, have been aware of its existence, I'm really just surprised that Tawai didn't sue TSR. Because, let's face facts, it's 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 a ripoff of the green slime to the point that even with the shape of the space, space, space station excuse me, that you're fighting in. So to me, it's, it's like that's just intellectual property theft, which is why I didn't bring it up, because frankly, I don't really care about it. It's, it's, I mean, if you're going to do that, either change it up enough, don't call them green slime monsters, or you know, go contact Toei, because I guarantee you they would have sold you a license for it. If it was Toho that they had ripped off instead of Toei, Toho would have sued them out of existence, as Toho is extremely protective of their intellectual property. Toei is not nearly so, at least not back then, and certainly not for their films. They're much more protective of their uh, their television properties nowadays. So I am familiar with the awful green things from outer space, and it, from what I understand, it's a really fun game. But you know, it's like give some credit where credit's due. You know, I understand. Okay, you're you're a small company and all that, but you're still making profit off of somebody else's idea. That's just me, though. I could be wrong. Talking about your brother, I appreciated Jason putting his two cents in about raising kids 
and exposing them to things to help them deal with their fears and worries. It has always been my belief that time spent with your kid watching TV or films that were age-appropriate for them is quality time. And age-appropriate is not something decided by some child psychiatrist who has never met your kid. You know what your kid can and can't handle. I hope you can get Jason back on. I enjoyed his going far and wide off the topic at hand, but still having a solid point to make no matter how many detours or distractions popped up. Till next time, Ron Sadowski. And Ron, of course, a member of the Dinner for Geeks podcast, uh, also available here on 2TrueFreaks.com. Ron, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, as I said earlier, if you want to hear more of my brother, you can go check out the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. I'm sure Jay will be back on our destruction directive at some point along with dr bill and if you listen to those two episodes of the green slime and the last dinosaur you may be able to figure out what movie we might the three of us might be covering i'm just saying it's out there if you want to look for it or listen to it all right i want to thank everyone for writing in i've still got several more emails in the email bag so there'll be more emails next time uh just keep those cards and letters coming i've said this time and time again feedback emails you know any type of message of feedback you can give that's like a podcaster's lifeblood because this really is a labor of love and this is something that uh, just knowing the people out there are enjoying it makes it all worthwhile so thanks everyone for writing in all right it's now the time in the show where we ask that immortal question what are we covering next time and next time we are moving back to the small screen as we are going to be taking a look at the next two episodes of the Subaraya classic ultraman we're going to look first at episode 11 featuring the really strange monster giango and then we're also going to be taking a look at episode number 12 featuring the centaur monster dodongo so definitely looking forward to that and we are believe it or not going to have some comic book coverage even though shogun warriors has ended we are in fact going to be taking a look as jack mentioned in his email fantastic four number 226 when doug mensch had taken over the fantastic four he revisited our Shogun Warrior pilot for one issue, and we're going to be taking a look at that. I have not read this issue, so I am definitely looking forward to checking that out and seeing how the uh, uh, catching up with Carson and Savage and Genji and seeing what's going on with them. And always nice to uh, have a Fantastic Four comic, you know. Shout out to uh, Andrew and uh, Steven once again. So coming back next time, we'll have news, emails, anything that fits into the episode, along with some coverage of Ultraman and the Shogun's guest starring in the Fantastic Four. So I hope everyone will come back for that show, and until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. 
You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. Uh, the one uh, the comparison I always make, it's kind of like The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. You know, ultimately, Stromberg and Drax have pretty much the exact same plan, but there's enough differences between them that you can kind of deal with the fact that they're, uh, you know, it's the same sort of plot, but there's enough differences. Are you serious with the helicopter? It's not one thing, it's another today. I cannot finish this damn thing.